you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids.
Electric Love by Keel off that second Keel record, The Right to Rock. Of course, the first record was Lay Down the Law. I'm speaking with Steve Riley, the guy who plays drums on that track today, and I think he accidentally refers to that Right to Rock record during the interview as the first Keel record, which it's not. It's technically the second, but it was it was the album that Steve played on. Welcome to another edition of Talking Metal. We have two great guests on the show today. We got Steve Riley from LA Guns, John Levin from Dokken, and I wanted to say Emily hasn't been on the show in a while, but Emily, you are here now and you're going to be probably on the next episode doing a music-based episode for the listeners. You're going to pick some tunes for the listeners. Can't wait. Can't wait. And I, I miss all of you guys and looking forward to speaking with all of you soon on the show. Awesome. So, guys, stay tuned for th- that. On the very next episode of Talking Metal, Emily will be joining us. Maybe she'll do some requests. Maybe she'll play some songs that she's handpicked for you. We'll just uh, we'll see what happens. But she's definitely going to be on probably the very next episode of Talking Metal. As I mentioned, we have Steve Riley from L.A. Guns. There's obviously two versions of that band out there. We had Kelly on a previous podcast, and now Steven's here to talk to us, not only about L.A. Guns, but about his amazing history. And he's played on so many great records that I just love. The Last Command by Wasp, uh, The Right to Rock by Keel. It's not just L.A. Guns with Steve Riley. It's quite a history. We're going to talk to him about some of that history in today's interview. Uh, a real pleasure speaking with him. Looking forward to seeing L.A. Guns at M3 this year, uh, that first week weekend in September. (laughs) Fingers crossed it happens. You know, we're all dealing with this shit out there right now, this COVID-19 thing. I'm over it. I'm over it. But uh, trying to stay safe. Just got a um, supply of face masks in from uh, sent over from all places, China. (laughs) So, yeah, so uh, we're, we're trying we're trying to deal with this the best we can. And, you know, I made a point not to talk about it for a few episodes we definitely mentioned it in the the interviews today but maybe we'll go back to doing a few more episodes where we don't talk about it again um fingers crossed that here in new jersey where we've been just hit so hard that the we've passed the curve i've had two friends that have uh can have have had it one's recovering you actually may have heard his interview with me rob dukes it was on a previous episode of this podcast. My other friend, Sean, just came out publicly. He's not somebody you know, but he lost his leg a couple years ago, and now he's battling COVID-19, as he called it, the Chinese virus, which, you know, to me shouldn't be a that big of a deal. You know, I'm, I'm more moderate. Some of the people right-wingers might think I'm a liberal, but I, I'm more moderate. I feel like I'm in the middle I have no problem with calling it the Chinese virus. Some people are all up in arms about that. Listen, that's where it started. That's where it started. Uh, I, I just don't think we've done enough to investigate where this came from and how it got here. You know, there's a whole big can of worms there, which I'll shut up there because I don't want to get political. <laughs> Something I, I really try hard not to do on this podcast because we are all brothers and sisters of hard rock and heavy metal we love the same music we leave our our favorite sports teams at the door we leave our political opinions at the door and we're here to celebrate the music that we love we're all fans 
of the greatest music of all time, hard rock and heavy metal. Yeah, so let's do this. Let's get into this. Let's rock. Where's the new Ozzy video? I'm waiting for it, man. I mean, that guy, what's the guy's name? He played Aquaman, Jason something. I mean, he he was supposed to uh, be in the new Ozzy video. We, we saw some teasers. It's my favorite song off the, the record, I think, one of them at least, off the Ordinary Man record. It's called Little, Scary Little Green Men. Steve Vai once had a song, I think, with the same same title, right? Back on his Flexible record. But, man, this Ozzy Osbourne song rocks. Check it out right here. Everybody wants them, and do we need them? 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 Ever
song so much, it, it inspired me to go back and watch Tim Burton's Mars Attacks movie, uh, which is so god-awful that it's entertaining. It really is. It really is. I, I couldn't sit through the whole two hours at once. I kind of watch it in little, like, 20-minute bulks because that's all I can take. But, man, what a cast in that movie. But Ozzy Osbourne, what an album. Ordinary Man, Ozzy's back, guys. This is White Shut. All right, so before we hit the interviews, we're going to hit a song by Mirith. This is going out to Steven Saylor. Steven, thank you for all your support on Patreon. This is live, Mirith. I always worry I'm pronouncing that wrong because it looks like Myrith, but it's Mirith, I think. Right, Steven? M-Y-R-A-T-H. This is off their brand new live record, which just came out April 17th. It is Wide Shut from Live in Car- Carthage. Carthage? C-A-R-T-H-A-G-E. Man, I'm bad with pronouncing names. But anyways, here we go. On Talking Metal. Wide Shut by Mirith.
Talking metal, check that band out. M Y R A T H. We had an interview with their lead vocalist recently on the podcast. Right when this COVID nineteen shit was first starting to hit, he was in Italy. (laughs) Go back and listen to that a few episodes ago, four or five episodes ago at this point. And without further ado, let's do these interviews. I I just I'm not sure which one to play first. I guess because they're both they're both really good. I guess we'll do Steve Riley first. This is brand new LA Guns with Crawl, followed by my interview with Steve Riley. Steve Riley, how are you, Steve? 
I'm doing good, Mark. How are you, brother? Uh, under the circumstances, I'm, I'm trying to stay positive and stay safe. You're doing the quarantine thing, staying in, staying safe, Steve? Yeah, brother, you know, it's a real strange time we're going through right now, but that we're, that's exactly what we're doing here in L.A. We're just following the guidelines and staying in and just going out for food and coming right back and right. buttoning down. But, uh, wow, it's crazy, isn't it? It is a crazy time. And, you know, I'm looking forward to this all getting behind us. And I oh, was yeah. psyched that they didn't cancel they only postponed the M3 festival this year because I feel like that for me is just going to be such a celebration this year and coming out of this and leaving all this behind us, hopefully by that point we're fingers crossed, of course. And oh, I totally agree. So psyched to see you guys there. Cause you guys kicked ass last year. I loved the set you played last year at M3. Oh, great. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. And you guys I hope this year are going to play some some new material, right? Because there's new songs in the works. There's a new a full length album in the works. Can you talk a little bit about what you're up to with LA Guns? Yeah, you know, we um, just finished. Uh, actually, we finished the album called Renegades, and uh, it's with Kelly Nichols, Scott Griffin, Kurt Froelich, and myself. And uh, it all started really with last year's M3, and uh, the show went so well that uh, we knew that we wanted to do some more shows together. And we really didn't have a big schedule that we were planning. We just knew that we wanted to play some more shows. And from that show, the M3 show went so well that um, we picked up management right away. And it was Eric Baker and Bobby Collins from New Breed Primary Wave. And uh, they wanted to manage us. And once they jumped on board, they got us a record deal with Golden Robot Records, and uh, we uh, got an agency with Sullivan Big at Big Time, and um, we just started planning slowly on what we could do, and we did a couple more shows after that M3, and then we went into big time mode of pre-production for this album, Renegades, and uh we all live all over the country, you know, Kurt's in uh, Florida and Scotty's in New York and I mean, Scotty's in Las Vegas and, and uh, Kelly Nichols is up in New York and I'm out now Los Angeles. And um, it was a bit of a challenge on figuring out how we were going to do this with us all spread out all, all over the country. And um, we did about a two month uh, pre-production via the network. We were all sitting on a bunch of material that we had previously written on our own and uh, we started exchanging ideas and we did that for about a couple of months and whittled down a whole bunch of material down to about 10 songs and uh, I got all the guys out here to Los Angeles and we did nine days together. We we did two days of almost 24-hour pre-production from morning all the way into the late evening and that was just piecing together all of the songs and we had already had a great head start with the with working through the internet and and, and exchanging ideas and so we did two days of insane pre-production and right from there we went right the next day into stag street studios here in uh, los angeles and we did a seven-day marathon recording and uh 
we just went for it. We really dug down deep and went for it. And uh, it was very old school recording too, where we, there wasn't so much thought put into it where we started to, you know, it started to, to get diluted at all. It was very focused. And uh, I sent the guys home and then I mixed it with the engineer for four days. And then went into a, a mastering studio, mastered it. And um, it was all done really, really quickly. And it turned out really good. We were really happy with the way it turned out. And um, Kelly did all of the artwork on it. I produced the album and we put it together. It was just a real nice, uh, organic way of putting it together, too. Very cool. And, um, it, it, yeah, it's out right now. You know, it's going to be coming out. The single will be out April 20th, Crawl. Right. And then, I heard it. It's great. With, Eric played it for me. Oh, great thanks, stuff. Thanks so much. We feel great about it. And, uh, you know, with what's going on right now with this virus and everybody uh, shutting down and all gigs postponed, we we have a bunch of gigs that were postponed. We should have done about five shows by now and uh, leading right into the summer and doing Milwaukee Fest and all of these big festivals and uh, including M3, obviously. And uh, because of that, we're, 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 every, we're like everybody else. We're on in this mode of just wondering how and when this thing is going to end and how we can proceed from there. So, uh, Basically, we're just really, really happy and, and feel uh, fortunate that we got to do the album before this thing came about. You know, we were finished with everything before this virus set in. And uh, and that was very, very lucky, you know, because if we had a planned on doing it right now or in the summer, it would have been nearly impossible. So that's where we're at. We have a bunch of shows on the book like every other band and they're not canceled they're all postponed and being trying to be rescheduled and even that's a, a challenge too trying to reschedule them because everybody's kind of guessing right there and so that's where we're at we're sitting on a great album right now and uh we're going to release a single and then let sullivan over a big time try to reschedule these shows and see how we can put them all together right now for the right on. summer going into the fall. So the album is, is completed. You're, you're telling me, but there's no release date for the actual album. Is that correct? I mean, the single you're saying April 20th, but the album itself, you're kind of just waiting to see what happens. That's correct. You okay. know, we were going to pretty much try to release the album right before M3 and we were going to do some shows before M3 and give like the guy, the fans a little tease, play one, maybe two songs and then release the album and then do M3 and jump into all of these festivals this summer. And because of what's happening, we don't know what's going on right now. We don't know how, how they want to go about it, but, uh, it could be pushed back a little bit and we don't blame them or mind it happening because, you know, it makes a lot of sense. We still want to release it before we start doing all the shows, right? It could be pushed back a little bit right now. Gotcha. Okay. Well, keep us posted because we're, we're dying for the new album. And like I said, I heard the single and it sounds great. We are fingers crossed with M3 in September. I, I think if that can happen, that's going to be just such a party, not only for, for the bands, but for the fans to finally get this behind us and come celebrate the music that we love. 
Oh, I agree. I totally think that M3 will be a blast this year when it does happen. And uh, I'm a big sports fan, and I'm like almost gauging what will happen with bands and entertainment and live shows from what's going to happen with sports because it's the same situation right. with fans all shoulder to shoulder and uh, in tight situations. So it's I'm, I'm almost like gauging it on whatever happens with sports will happen with the entertainment live venues and playing out live. And so, you know, I got my fingers crossed and, you know, each day it looks better but you know it's still in a real dire situation right now and we're right we're, we got our fingers crossed we're, we're hoping that you know this thing clears up you know in the next few couple of few months yeah well one day at a time and uh yeah fingers crossed steve uh, steve you you've totally. played on some of my my favorite records from from my youth uh, i was going through everything you've done it's not just you know it's not just cocked and loaded by la guns but it's it's like a, a, an album that i loved was the right to rock by keel uh some of the wasp right. stuff what do you remember about that keel record gene simmons producing right yeah it was a great experience and it was um it was something where the, you know, I w I had been doing, um, I was in a band called the bees and we were in Chicago and we were signed to Epic records. And, uh, we had done, it, it was a one-off type of album that we did. We were planning on doing more, but it just didn't happen. So I ended up coming back to Los Angeles and doing a lot of session work. And I mean, just any kind of sessions doing demos for people and what have you. And, uh, in one of those demo situations in 80, I think it was early 84, uh, I, Greg Chasen, the bass player from Badlands, he was right. also in one of those sessions. And he told me that his brother was in a band, Kenny was in a band, and he was, it was called Keel, and they were getting ready to record their album with Gene Simmons, and they were on A&M, and it sounded like an unbelievable great situation. And he told me to just call them and uh, and tell them, give me a shot to come down and just play with you and see what you think. And I did that. I just went right ahead and called them, and uh, I got the, sh the gig, and Gene was there, and uh, I had already n met Gene and know knew him uh, somewhat in 78 and 79 from being out here in LA and other bands that I were in and uh, he was, might, was interested slightly in maybe getting interested so I kind of knew Gene but uh, when I did this, the audition for Kale and I got the gig Gene was there and he was into it and wanted me to do it and uh, we did a, a pre-production they were really well into their pre-production for their album and uh and they had all their songs put together and it was just a matter of me learning them real quick and going in to record them. And uh, Gene was there every step of the way. He was there for every day of pre-production, wow. every day for recording. Real hands-on producer. Totally. And yeah. just a great guy. And I, I, I think just a great musician, a great producer. And uh, he was there for everything. And I actually got to... Uh, sing all the background vocals with Gene on right, right to Rock and everything was going smoothly and I, I, I really thought the future for Kill looked really bright and uh, I was totally into it and so it was a great experience and uh, it led me into Wasp but the, the fact of me doing the Right to Rock 
I, I really like the album a lot. I think it's a great metal album, and uh, I, I'm so glad I got to do it with them, and I'm still friends with everybody in Kiel. And uh, they obviously went on, and I went on to do Wasp. But, uh, yeah, that was a, an absolute positive experience all the way around working with Gene Simmons and Ron Keel. That album should have been bigger. I mean, the, like all the songs, the, the hooks, the catchiness, it was it was so great of an album. I'm surprised it didn't blow up. I agree, you know, and I, I was out on tour with Wasp for their first album when that got released. When the Right to Rock got released in early 85, um, I was out on tour with Wasp and uh, I got it sent to me and I listened to it and I was like blown away. I thought it was really, really good and it, it turned out great. And I agree. I, I, I thought that it should have done a lot better than it did. And, uh, it, you know, luckily those guys still went on and they did a bunch of more albums and they did a couple more with Gene and a couple without Gene, but they did a lot of uh, work, those guys. So they kept pushing forward, but I, I agree totally. The Right to Rock should have done better. It was a really, really great rock uh, metal album. And, uh, it had a lot of great material on it. Yeah, absolutely. You went on then, as you mentioned, to join up with Wasp, I guess, touring for their first album and then playing with them for at least, what, three, three, four records? Yeah, I did three more albums with them. And uh, I got, you know, I joined. It, it's funny because three bands right in a row that I joined had done their first albums and left their drummers go before they even toured at all. Mm. Some right before they before they even had the albums uh, packaged. And uh, so, you know, with Kill, they, uh, they had their whole pre-production ready, and I got to play on that first album. But with Wasp, they had already recorded their first album and let their drummer go. Tony Richards, they let him go. And for whatever reason, they let him go. And um, while I was with Kill, we were in a mix mode over at the record plant, the old record plant on Third Street here in L.A. And uh, things were going really great. I'm with Gene and uh, the album's being put together and just feeling great about it. And uh, then I got a call from Blackie and he asked me, do I want to come over to his house and listen to their first album? They're getting ready to go out on a world tour and they're managed by the Iron Maiden people, and they have this big machine. And I, I went over there, and I checked it out and talked with him. And obviously, the, I, I listened to that first Wasp album, and I was blown away. I thought it was great. And uh, I was in a very weird predicament, too, because I was in such a good situation with Kiel and feeling great about it. But then I get this offer that's even better, and... Uh, it, it was just something I had to do, and it was a very difficult decision to make to leave Keel, you know, during the mix of uh, Right to Rock to go and join Wasp. And it was a good decision, but a very difficult decision at the time. But um, that's what happened. They let their drummer go after their first album was recorded, and they hadn't done anything, any touring outside of local shows here in LA and uh, I had like about really I had about two or three weeks to get into that whole wasp mode that whole look the whole feel and everything and uh, I we went over to England and started that world tour and I went I stayed with them 
all the way up into uh, mid-late 87, I believe it was, like, you know, late 87, and uh, I recorded uh, The Last Command, Inside the Electric Circus, right. and um, the, uh, the, the uh, Live in the Rye album. Right. So I did those three albums with them, and then uh, in late 87, that's when Blackie started to slowly pull the band apart. He let Randy Piper go. He let me go. And then a couple of years later, he let Chris Holmes go. And it was, a, it, was it was a shame because I just thought Wasp, thought that first incarnation of Wasp with the four of us was uh, just a great band, theatrically and sonically. We were yeah, and, and on man. and on album too, because I mean, in The Last Command and I mean, that's such a great record. Um, really, really love that record. That's another one. I thought, I mean, that was a big record, but I thought it probably should have been bigger. I agree. Totally. I thought that that album just had so much going for it. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, an album that I, I'm so glad I got to do with them. And, uh, after we did that album, you know, we did a, a world tour that went on for like about a year and a half. And, after that tour, that's when he let Randy Piper, he quit, he fired Randy Piper, Blackie fired Piper. And that was a big, big move for him to make because it changed the band big time because Randy was uh, the second lead guitar player. He wasn't just a rhythm guitar player. He had played a lot of lead solos on the first two Wasp albums and on that Billy Gibbons type of lead guitar that you hear, Chris Holmes was more of an Eddie Van Halen type of uh, player. And Randy was more of, like I said, a Billy Gibbons type of player. And uh, he played a lot of the leads and uh, he sang that second harmony. So when he fired Randy and before we did the uh, live, uh, the electric circus, it, it, it changed the whole dynamics of the band. And, uh, and we did Electric Circus, and we recorded Live in the Raw from that whole world tour from Electric Circus. And uh, that's when, you know, like I said, he started dismantling the band slowly but surely. And it was a shame because I, I just thought Wasp was a great band. We were blown out the band for our headliners off the stage, Mark. We were so good live, and uh, we had some really great material and great records, and I, I just was, I felt so bad that that band got dismantled the way it did, but it did, and, uh, you know, in 87, after after firing Randy Piper, Blackie fired me, <laughs> so, you know, he let right. me go, and uh, he, he was going to go on, and he said he was going to do a solo thing, but it was really him just wanting to go on and do Wasp with other people, and that was that, and I just accepted it and, uh, in 87, and uh, that was when, obviously, I, I, I met up with these L.A. Guns guys and, and joined them. Right, and what a record that was, too. I mean, Cocked and Loaded. You, now, did you play, you played on one song on their first record, is that correct? No, you know no. what, they, again, it was just like Wasp. It was almost identical where they had done their first album, L.A. Guns, and they did. It wasn't even packaged yet. It was still. What they did was, you know, I I was living in an apartment in in L.A. here, and so I couldn't practice my drums. I wasn't in a house where I could practice, so I I just rented a room over at SIR on my own and brought my drums over there to stay loose because 
I really didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to do something. I, I, I always had that, that frame of mind where I didn't know what I was going to do, but there was no way I was going to hang it up and just say, okay, that was it. It was a great little run, but um, I knew I was going to do something. So I went over there and started rehearsing by myself and just playing drums and staying loose. And the LA guns guys were in the studio next door and they had just finished recording their first album and they did exactly what Wasp did. They let their drummer go before they did any any shows outside of L.A. So they hadn't done any touring. The album wasn't even packaged. That's why you see my photo on that album. And because it wasn't even packaged and I joined okay. that early in the, in the process. Right. And so, you know, I, we did that first uh, tour and, and toured our balls off on that first tour and then went into do Cocked and Loaded. Right on. And when you did Cocked and Loaded, you know, I, I believe... Correct me if I'm wrong, but the full band is is credited as songwriters on that. Was it a real group effort coming up with those songs for Cocked and Loaded? Oh, it truly was. It was it was something where you know um, when I joined too, they they had a machine around them that was built with management agency and and and, and what have you, and it, it was a it was a machine that obviously I'm coming from Wasp and. I'm coming from this machine that Iron Maiden had, and it was huge, and it was just a, a unbelievable management agency situation. And so when I joined, I was the guy that had the most experience in the band when I did join. And um, we talked, I talked with them and told them that if we really wanted to take this to the next level, you know, we're, we're going to have to get stronger management. We're going to have to get a bigger agency, a bigger merchandise deal, everything, a better accountant, everything. I told them that, you know, we're going to have to take it to another step. And so, you know, I was pretty much anointed right there to do it and put the machine together and and start putting the, doing the business for the band right as when I joined. And so... I, I, I brought on a bunch of people that had worked with Wasp and uh, we got bigger management with Alan Kovac, who's now managing Motley. And, you know, I, he, at that time he was just starting out, but he had a few acts on uh, the radio with Richard Marks. And that's what impressed me because I went around and I interviewed about a dozen managers on my own when I was in LA guns and, I uh, I I decided on Alan Kovac, you know, and I told the guys why. It was because he was so dialed in with radio, and this is what we needed. We needed somebody that was dialed in with radio, and I brought Bill Elson in, the agency from New York, and and to 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 put a really good tour together. And when I did that, before we decocked and loaded, I I had already went through the experience of Blackie writing all of the material for Wasp. I got to write one song on Last Command. There was a uh, Jack action, and but it really was Blackie writing most of the material. And so, you know, I told the guys, we sat down at a meeting and I told them that we should all be writing together. We should all share in the writing credits too. And if we get ahead, we get ahead together. And so we did, we did exactly that. We started writing together and did a good pre-production with Tom Worman and his his team with Dwayne Barron and John Perdell. And 
we wrote all of the songs together and somebody would bring in the gist of the song and then we would finish it together. And, uh, that's what happened. We ended up writing together. And from that point on, whatever band I was in, that was the, 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 the mold, the situation right. that I thought would work with everybody. If somebody got ahead, if we, it was going to be all of us at the same time. So yeah, with Cocked and Loaded, we were all writing together and we were sharing in the credits and I thought it worked out really good. You know, it was a really good democratic situation. Right. I think that is the key word, democratic, because you seem to recognize that it's more than just some good songs. I mean, it's 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 a machine, like you said, it's a team playing together and that includes management and lawyers and and accountants right. and everybody. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's like it, it, with uh, with that type of a situation, like I said, if you have success, all five band members have success together. And it's, it, it's the really good, healthy way to go in a band. And when you have a solo songwriter writing everything and them getting publishing and if the album's doing good and the other three members are just making a salary when we're out on tour... It's, it's it's an uneven situation. So it, it, I learned a lot from the Wasp situation like that. And so it was very important for me to set LA Guns up where if we got moving, we were all going to move together in, right on. in one situation. So it was great. Very cool. Great story, Steve. And, and again, we're really excited for this new L.A. Guns record, Renegade. And it is L.A. Guns. You know, I, I see some headlines that say Steve Riley's L.A. Guns, but no, the official name of the band is L.A. Guns, right? Yeah, you know, Mark, look, here's what the situation is in a nutshell. I, I was the only one that stayed in L.A. Guns. I was, I'm the longest tenured member in L.A. Guns. And even though I came in pretty much last at the very beginning, I'm the one that stayed with the band. And Tracy quit in 2002. He quit L.A. Guns, this band. He quit it. And he went on and he did other projects and uh, was out of the band for quite a long time, 15, 16 years. And Phil Lewis and myself we kept moving on and it was LA guns. We were the original LA guns because Mick and Kelly, uh, Mick Cripps and Kelly Nichols decided to leave too. And they're still very tight with me and really good friends with me, but they decided to leave and they wanted to do other stuff and totally understood it. But Phil, Tracy and myself, we wanted to keep going on. So LA guns went on and Tracy ended up leaving the, the band and then Phil and I, we went on for like 15 years. LA Guns kept moving forward and doing albums and working with Andy Johns. And then Phil Lewis decided to leave the band too. And I'm still in the band and I'm still running the business and we're, we're LA Guns. So, you know, this is LA Guns. And Kelly decided he wanted to come back and, and, and get involved again. And that was a great uh, situation when that happened, it, it really it, I was so happy because I felt like we were a great rhythm section and we did some really great stuff together and we're really tight friends. So he came back and uh, before this M3 show last year, and um, yeah, this is LA Guns, you know. I, I I've never left the band. I'm pretty much the only one 
who never quit the band. And uh, I just kept it going. And I ran the business from day one I joined in 87 all the way up to now. So this is L.A. Guns. And it, Kelly and I consider this L.A. Guns. And, right. you know, if they have to differentiate it with saying Steve and Kelly, right, Kelly Nichols, uh, L.A. Guns, that's cool with us, too, because we know the other two guys are out there. And uh, But, yeah, this is the band. This is the band that I joined and never quit. And uh, pretty much everybody, all the original members, quit or left the band at one point or another, and I just never did. So, you know, I, I feel very strongly about this is L.A. Guns. Absolutely. I totally get what you're saying. And... Yeah, again, we are psyched for M3. We are psyched for the album. Please keep us posted on when Renegade... It's Renegades or Renegade? Yeah, Renegade. Renegades, well, yeah. Yeah, so, and uh, there's actually a song on the album, too, called Renegades. And we just... We thought it was a great name and a great... It fit the band. And uh, it's LA Guns Renegades, and it's on Golden Robot Records. And uh, it should be coming out in mid-year like early fall, depending, like I said, on what the situation presents. Right. And, uh, but we're ready and, uh, we have everything packaged. The artwork's done. The album's already packaged and everything's ready. And we're really excited for everybody to hear it. Not just crawl. We love the, the song crawl, but the, the other songs on the album are just burning because we all brought in material on this. We had been sitting on material that we had each written and, uh, we did a two-month pre-production all via the internet, you know, before I had everybody come out here. And so uh, it was uh, material that, like I said, everybody had the gist of their ideas. And then when we got together, we finished them together. And again, we share with songwriting credit on this album, too. Steve, thank you so much for your time today. It's great hearing the old stories. I love the the Gene Simmons stories. And and it's just great that you're out there doing it with LA Guns. Great you got Kelly back in the band. We cannot wait for M3. Fingers crossed that this is really going to be a big uh, coming out for us all. Uh, The Labor Day weekend in September, the M3 Festival with LA Guns. I totally agree with you, brother. And listen, we... We thank you for your support, and I know you did a, a great interview with Kelly, and uh, we're just looking forward to seeing you and the fans at M3 and the other festivals that we have booked. And uh, you know what? This could turn out to be a really good year once we get past this little problem we're going through. And uh, we just like to thank you for your support, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to come find you at M3. I want to get a picture with you because, like I said, you've played on some of my favorite records. It'd be an honor to to shake your hand. Well, maybe we can't shake hands uh, anymore. Fist bump, right? <laughs> Fist bump hey, and a no, picture. But, but count on it. We'll definitely do a photo together, Mike. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You got it.
Some classic LA Guns right there, Rip and Tear, going way back. Yeah, man, great to talk with Steve. What a pleasure, what an honor, a guy I've been a fan of for a long time. Without further ado, let's get into my interview with John Levin of Dokken. Here we go. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and on the phone with me, we have John Levin of Dokken. John, how are you? Doing great, man. Really good today. Thanks so much. Enjoying my quarantine. Yes. Yeah, weird times for sure. And, you know, I got this site sent over to me. It's johnlevinguitars.com. And what better time for me to dive into my guitar chops again and, and start learning from you? This is really, really cool stuff. You have some sample videos up there, which I was just looking at. And it looks like there's a ton of videos that subscribers can get. And this is you showing your tricks, showing your magic to guitar guitar players and guitar students. Can you talk a little bit about the website and how this all came about? Sure. Um, well, I was sitting on my couch uh, around this, in December and I was playing guitar on the couch and my brother-in-law um, was over and he was watching me and he, and he was you know, liking it. He's like, hey man, what? I love this. Why don't you just do this? Can't people just see you play? I'm like, what do you mean? Like watch people watch me play guitar on the couch? Right. Who's going to want to see that? And he said, um, then I, I was like, well, you think people would like it if I just like started you know doing riffs recording riffs on my iphone or me on the couch playing and putting them up so it started out like that so i recorded a bunch of riffs on my iphone sent them to a buddy of mine uh, and he's like listen man if you're going to do this you can't record it on your iphone it sounds terrible you got to get a real camera and you know then it turned into this whole other thing where i bought all this gear that i had no idea how to use and um it took you know, two or three weeks for me to get a guitar sound that I like. Cause I knew I wanted it to go direct into the camera, you know? Right. So that took some time and lo and behold, here I am now. I got a website with a hundred video clips up there and it's tutorial clips um, based on, you know, beginner, intermediate and advanced. Uh, you know, we, I call it mild, medium and, and spicy. That's how right. I categorized it. And then there's practice riffs and I'm doing, uh, teaching people how to play the guitar solos to the docking era stuff that I, I wrote, you know, um, and we're going to do that. And, you know, just all in all, then there's a gear discussion and going to talk about my gear because you know, people have asked me many times, what are you using? How do you do this? And I'm going to just really get under the hood and tell people, hey, here it is. And they're probably going to be shocked when they hear how simple it is. <laughs> that, you know, as far as the gear goes, really? What's that? As far as your gear goes, you're saying it's 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 a simple setup? Uh, yeah. I, well, you know, look, when we play when we play live, we just do fly dates really now, as, as do most bands. Um, it's really expensive to keep a tour bus, and there's no good gigs for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday night. So, you know, right. we fly in on a Thursday and play Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, as the case may be. You know, it's one com- combination of that. And I, we have rented backline, and I just advance a, a Marshall amp, a, a couple of heads and a few cabinets, and bring some basic pedals. Right. And that's what I do now. You know, back when we had the bus tours, I used to have a much more extensive setup, and that I'm going to also talk about. So I'm going to go over my fly date rig. I'm going to talk about my, you know, full touring rig and what I'm doing just in the studio when I record and what I'm doing to get the sounds, um, if anyone likes the sounds, that is, that I'm doing on the website. I think they will. I spent a lot of time with them. I'm liking them, so... Yeah, the guitar sounds amazing on the clips that I saw. Oh, and thanks, and man. the cool thing that you do, which which I love as a guitar player, is you play the riff at full speed, but then there's another 
video right next to it where it's slowed down where we can actually learn it and then there's a third video where you actually talk us through the the lick or the riff that you're playing like okay you're hitting the 10th strip fret here it's an open e here you know so it's very very easy to kind of understand what you're doing and how you play these riffs which at times sound very complicated well um, thanks i'm glad you like the layout look i wanted to make it very digestible for someone to learn. And, you know, look, when we were kids, we didn't have that ability to watch someone play it up close and then play it slowly and then tell about how to do it. Right. You know, I wanted to learn how to slow my turntable down. So it was a whole different (laughs) thing back then. And I wanted to make it very easy to make someone enjoy it because if you don't enjoy it, no one's going to do it. And I know when I was learning, I didn't want to learn how to play a scale and to, you know, learn music theory. That wasn't fun to me. I wanted to just learn how to play and I wanted you know, if I had the ability back then having someone sit in front of me that I, I liked as a player, that would be even better. So that's what I did. And, you know, I took it even one step further. For now, I'm allowing people to even email me their questions. And, you know, for now, you can take a Skype lesson if you want to go over. I don't know how long that's going to last, just, you know, from time right. considerations. But I, I'm doing it for a minute. Gotcha. But the basic subscription for the site is nine ninety nine a month, or you can say yeah, a little well money. Be free. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you, I mean, right. if you do a year, it's only ninety nine dollars. And I mean, I take my 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 eleven year old down to the local music store for violin lessons, and I mean, he we're paying like thirty five for a thirty minute lesson. So this is a steal, really, when you think about it. Oh, the, yeah. I, I, you know what? I wanted to make it. So that anyone who wants the key to the door, here it is. You could pay for this with a paper route. When the, well, not now. Don't go outside. Now. Right. But eventually. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> you know, and, and I, I wanted to make it so it's affordable. Absolutely. And there's so much great stuff up there. Again, it's JohnLevinGuitars.com. One thing I loved was the the guitar porn gallery you have there, all all your guitars. And I mean, there's some really beautiful guitars you have hanging up on, it looks like your wall there, and you have the pictures of them and you can blow them up and look at them. Uh, the 1982 Charvel Big Mouth, any stories behind yeah. that one? Yeah. And it's funny, just as uh, as you were, I was, before I was calling you, I was just was recording some clips to post on it. Yeah, I, I bought that guitar. I, I worked for three summers when I was just a little kid, like 14, 15, 16, around there. No, 13, 14, 15, guarding a parking lot. Like, listen, like, <laughs> like I'm going to deter anyone from stealing a guitar as a little kid, but regardless. Right. You know, and I, I mean, like, <laughs> back then it might have been like 2 or $3 an hour. So you yeah. can imagine, you know, how long I had to sit in this parking lot to earn it was $1,160 to buy that guitar. I bought it wow. when I was 15 years old. My mother drove me to Grayson's Music in Hempstead, which was a really great store. It's not there anymore, but, you know, they had Charvels and Deans and all the cool stuff from back when we were kids, you know. Right. And right. I heard about this guitar from a friend of mine, and I, and I knew I wanted it before I even saw it. He, he described it to me, you know, the mouth paint job, and, you know, I, I wanted, I guess, a Rosewood fretboard uh, back then. So funny because now I'm more into maple and ebony, but whatever. So right I, I I went to the store. I was a hundred dollars short. My mother loaned me the hundred dollars. That's a lot of money back to 1980. I think it was actually yeah. 81. Wow. I think it was 81. I was 15, and you know it's 1160 dollars. Yeah, that's a crazy that amount of money for the early 80s. Yeah, unbelievable. A lot of money, but boy, that was just like you know I, I had a Les Paul when I was 13, which was really nice. My parents bought that for me as a gift. 
But this was just like stepping into, at the time, it was like putting away, you know, not, not to say, I love Les Pauls, but it was like putting away the guitar that everybody was driving and, and getting this whole new thing inspired by the era of all the great players from back in the day that were playing those guitars. Yeah. How about the 1988 Kramer Beretta? I had a, I had like an 86 Kramer Pacer, which I, I loved, but the, the Beretta, definitely a cool looking guitar. Uh, here's the story behind that. I was a Kramer and Dorsey, and they endorsed me uh, before I even had anything going on. I was literally in a club band on Long, Long Island. It was called Devious. I was a kid. Maybe I was, let's see, I was 19 or 20, 20 years old, probably. And, you know, they, I sent in a tape. Like you, I just went, I sent in a tape to the director of to artist relations blindly. And wow. I got a call out of the blue. And, I, and the guy just said, hey, I loved your tape. I really think you're going to do something. And I'm going to endorse you. I, I, I almost seriously, I felt, I think my brain fell out of my head on that phone call as a kid wow. to hear that. Yeah. And I didn't even know what that meant. I, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you a free guitar. So I, I couldn't believe it. That was just like mind blowing for me. So, you know, and I got, uh, uh, they, they were, they endorsed me for a number of years, you know. And the one that's up on the website was a black one. It was the same one I used when I toured in the Doro in Doro's band in eighty in eighty nine. Um, only I was I was playing it in the docking gigs in the beginning, like two thousand three and four. And when I was sitting in the dressing room um, with Nick, and we had a, a long time. I remember the day pretty well. We had a lot of time to do, and we had nothing to do in the dressing room. And he's like, "Man, that guitar looks so plain." I'm like, "Really?" He's like, "Yeah, let's do something." So I'm like, "All right, what do you want to do?" So he's like, "Let's." Go to, let's go to a hardware store and get like reflective tape. So we went to the hardware store, bought reflecting tape, right. and I gave him the roll of reflecting tape, and he wrapped the whole guitar in chrome reflective tape. Oh, wow. So he, the design is basically Mick Brown. And it sounded even better. Yeah. It sounded oh, even really? better after I wrapped it. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. You have a 1959 Gibson Les Paul up there, which looks really really cool and vintage that's that's an actual that's not a reissue that's an actual 59 gibson les paul yeah that's the actual 59 les paul special and and, and i bought it 30 something years ago for 300 dollars. oh my god wow 35 years ago i would say i don't know how valuable it is today or what it's you know i don't that that's probably my favorite guitar of all my guitars Really, and not even just because it's an old guitar. Because I don't go by that. I go by I like it or I don't. I don't care if it was made yesterday. Right. But and but that particular one just has an unbelievable magic to it. And the the original owner of it, through through someone through a mutual friend, recently reached out to me, seeing if he could get it back. But I just can't part with it. Man. Right. It's been a part of of who I am for so many years, you know. And I love that. It's just a wonderful guitar. Yeah, and again, guys, we're talking with John Levin, and you can see all these guitars on johnlevinguitars.com. You can take lessons there. Uh, again, all sorts of stuff to check out. Discussions from John, definitely well worth the money, which is barely anything, nine ninety nine a month or $99 for a whole year. And what better time than now to buckle down and learn some guitar riffs? I mean, we're all kind of stuck at home here. There's not a hell of a lot to do, so be the perfect time to uh to subscribe to this and and john the you said the the 59 gibson les paul special possibly your favorite guitar but what's your most used yeah. guitar which guitar do you use the most oh well yeah okay uh well for for the when i play with Dawkins, i seem to rotate between 
three of them, and that's the black and white Charvel. Okay. Uh, and and that guitar just sounds like a sledgehammer. And the reason why I like that one so much is, first of all, it's, I don't like anything that's too heavy, um, so I can't play really heavy guitars that bother my shoulder too much. Uh, so that one's like pretty pretty light. Uh, it's probably like in the mid sevens. Uh, and there's something about the sound on that guitar that just has so much dynamic range from low end to high end. It's like not missing anything. So it, it really helps me if I get an, a mediocre amp. Because if I get an okay or a mediocre amp with that guitar, I can make right. it into a really good amp. So that, that's what I, I love about it. You know, that's the first thing. And, and sometimes, you know, we have to go with house sound guys. And this way I know between that and what I'm doing, I, I got it pretty close already. So I like it for those reasons. Plus, it's super comfortable and it sounds great. Um, it has giant stainless steel frets in it. Um, and a little bit, it's got the R2. I don't want to get too technical, but it's got the little bit smaller size fretboard at the nut, the R2 nut, which is really comfortable for me. Okay. And, you know, I just love that guitar. And, you know, it's got a direct-mounted treble pickup. It's, it was direct-mounted to the wood. And it, it always sounded okay. But then one day, this friend of mine, his name's David Ryan, Drove out to my house from, like, he lives out in Palm Springs or something. Drove to my house because I spoke to him on the phone. He said, hey, man, I got this method that I'm doing to pickups, and I, I want to try it on one of your guitars. He came over, and he injected something under the pickup. It was, it was unbelievable. It, 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 once he did one, I made him do, like, everything I had. Wow. And plus, I change all the parts on all my guitars. Anything with the Floyd Rose, I change it all to the FU Tone upgraded parts. I like the titanium inserts. Oh yeah, yeah. No, F, uh, that's Adam, yeah. right? Adam does F, a few tones. Yeah, yeah, Adam's a dear friend of mine. I, I change a lot of the parts to titanium, and I change always change the Floyd Rose block to either titanium or brass. Um, brass is a little heavy, so usually I'll go with the titanium, and that just adds a, a nice amount of shimmer on the high end. So that's that guitar. Then I have the uh, red and black um, Rising Sun guitar that Dan Lawrence painted. It's also a Charvel. Cool. And Dan was the one back in the day that painted my original Big Mouth guitar when he worked at Charvel. He said he remembered doing that. Oh, wow. So that was pretty interesting. And, and that guitar is also a great guitar, a little more mid-rangey than the other one. Um, it has a wider fretboard, also really light. Um, the workhorse, great guitar. And then the third one is this is a guitar that Adam Reaver built for me. It's brown and it has tribal art on it. And that guitar... Was, it weighs literally like five pounds. Wow. Like you would, you, when you pick it up, you can't, seriously, you can pick up a cookie jar that weighs more than this guitar. Right, right. And Adam yeah. Reaver, who you mentioned, FU Tone is his company, and he works on a lot of people's guitars. I mean, even Eddie Van Halen has Adam come in and do work on, uh, with, with him Adam's on his guitar. Addition. Yeah, yeah. He's, Adam, he's a dear friend of mine, and he's just great, man. Wonderful parts, and his company is awesome, and you know, he came to a show back in like 2007 when we met, seven or eight. I was on the road and he came to a show and said, hey, um, do you want to try this? I, I, if you want, I could change the block out in your guitar. I said, really? It's only like three hours before we're on. You want? He's like, no problem. Like, yeah, I gave him my guitar. Yeah. And changed it to titanium. And I was looking while I was playing on stage. I looked at him I, and I think I said to him, OK, he's like, you're, now you, you're like a, a dealer. You hooked me. Now I got to change them all. <laughs> right, right, right on. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, John, so did you take lessons growing up? Like, how did you learn guitar? I took some lessons early on. Um, I found a guitar. I was a musician at a young age. I was playing different instruments. Um, I went from piano to violin to trumpet. I was a good trumpet player. But then I found a guitar when I was nine years old in my basement. 
and it was my mother's nylon string acoustic. And uh, so I started fiddling around on that. And a friend of mine had this Beatles complete book and he had an electric guitar and an amp. And once I saw that, I got completely hooked because, you know, the book had like these little chord tabs. And so I started learning how to play a few chords. And then, uh, you know, I got my first acoustic guitar when I was 10. And then I got my first electric guitar at 11, which was a Univox high flyer. And wow. then I took a few, I took some lessons from some neighborhood guys who, who there were some great players in my neighborhood when I grew up. This is Long Island um, where you grew up. Yeah. There was this one, uh, one guy, Arnie Myatt was a wonderful guitar player. I'm sure he still is. And he gave me some lessons. Um, another guy, Mark Decker was a great guitar player who gave me some guitar lessons. Um, and then I, mean, I took, a, I took a lessons with this one studio guy, Joe Natoli. I remember the names. But, you know, I, I stopped the lessons when I was in, you know, the early teens, basically, mid, mid-teens, you know, maybe 19. I think that was it. At that point, I was li- listening to records and just learning what I wanted on my own, you know. And, I mean, not long after that, you hook up with Doro, right, for her first solo af- album after Warlock. Yeah, I had a Long Island club band called Devious, and we were playing the Long Island pub scene, and we were getting quite a following. Uh, one day, I got a call from... Uh, Tommy Hendrickson, who is still a very dear friend of mine to this day. He's a guitar player and a producer, really wonderfully talented guy. He plays uh, in Alice Cooper and in the Hollywood Vampires today. Right, right, right. right. And uh, he called me and and he said, hey, um, our guitar player left. And would you want to do this? He said, I'll tell you one thing about this fandom. And they tell you something, it happens. And and when he said that, I was like, wow, okay. So I learned the songs. I went and played with him once and we went over him and then I worked out for an audition and, and then I got it and I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. And the next thing I know, I'm making a record and you know, we did a headlining tour of Europe and I was, it was 1988 when I got that job. So I was 22. Wow. Very cool. And then of course you've been on, I think what, three, three dock and studio records, right? Hell to pay lightning strikes again and broken bones. Three studio. Yeah. Three studios. The re-recorded album, which was called Anthems, I think, which we re-recorded all the other songs. Um, and I want to say there was one other one, but I'm now losing my mind. And we're working on the next one now. Are you? Cool. Very cool. And how's Don doing? I know like we've read that he had some physical uh, neck and spine problems, right? And surgery, I think. Yeah. he's. I think he's doing much better, thankfully. You know, if anything... Any any big surgery is going to take some time to heal, and it's a frustrating time when you're the person who has to wait. It's terrible, you know, to have to go through that. But he's gonna. I think he's gonna be fine. And uh, you know, we did three shows with the Lynch Mob. We had it all in a blast, and it was going super well. Unfortunately, you know, the world got pulled out from under everybody's right. nose. Right. Um, but that's just how it goes. Hopefully, we'll be out soon. And and he's doing well. Awesome. And when you look back on those those three solo records that you've done with with Doc, and which one is there one that kind of rises to the top as your favorite? Uh, I gotta be honest. I haven't listened to the first one in so many years that I probably don't even know the names of many of the songs on there. You know, that was sixteen years, seventeen years ago. We recorded that first one. I'd have to go back and listen to it. But for me, the one that strikes the closest to my heart was the was the broken bones one okay um i really like what we did there and we put so much time into it and I, I was really happy with the guitar solo sections that i did for that too um 
I just came up with a different concept of doing it. In the past, you know, we always had studios and we'd go in and, you know, you're under a time pressure because it's expensive and you can't sit there all day messing around with one lead. And when it comes time to do the lead, it's like you got to be ready to play it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So I, I, I wanted to have a more relaxed approach after that. So I bought my own Pro Tools setup. And Darian, our engineer, set me up with this way to do it where I was able to just hit record. Anytime I felt like I wanted to play in my house, I could go hit record and go solo after solo after solo on a particular song. And I did that over a matter of weeks. So um, and then when I decided I had enough, there'd be like 15, 20 passes on, on each song done at different days. Then I'd go back and listen to them. And it was really amazing how I completely forgotten what I did from day to day. So the next day, I, that one, day one, it would sound like all, all of them would sound similar, you know. Then day two, they would all sound similar, but they would sound nothing like day one. Right, right. So I was able to, yeah, go through with the engineer and, and, you know, narrow down to what I felt was the most inspired, you know, um, composition. Cool. And when do you and think we'll hear... When yeah. do you think we'll hear the new Dokken? Is, is are you just in the beginning stages of it, or are you close to being done? No, no, we're in the beginning stage of it, but it's moving quickly. I mean, okay. we, we just wrote a song last week, and I have three more things that I, I just am working on that I'm going to play for Don. We're doing it with using Zoom. You know, we can't obviously get together. Right. Uh, but it's it's going well. We have, we have a system, the engineer, Don, and myself now. We all get on the Zoom, and, you know, and, and it's working out. I have the Pro Tools set up, and... I also have an ability to play now directly with my guitar into the Zoom. Oh, wow. So okay. they hear my direct signal. It, and they say it sounds great on their end. So cool. it's wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah, modern it, technology. It's awesome. And again, John Levin, it's great talking with you. And again, the website, johnlevinguitars.com is the place where all us guitar players need to go and learn these riffs. And again, you break them down, you get the riff full speed, then there's a video right there next to it, slow down, and then the other the other one that where you just walk us through it and you verbally explain what's going on in the in the riff. And great stuff. I'm looking forward to pulling the guitar out and doing some practicing with you. Awesome. Mark, thanks so much for the call. I appreciate it. Stay safe, John, and uh, we hope to see you back out on the road with Doc and sooner than later. You too, man. Sounds good. Awesome. I can't see your face anymore Through our broken past I can't feel your pain anymore I am free at last This love is lost like a distant song In an endless sea
by Dokken going back to 2008. Thank you, John, for joining us. And I did check out some of those videos, like I mentioned, the guitar videos on his site. They're awesome. They're really good. I'm, I'm thinking of joining myself. Uh, <laughs> really, got to do something here, right? I, I was, I, I, I've been really busy, but I've also find myself wasting time during this whole thing, you know? Um, I'm staying sort of busy with my work. Uh, you know, I've been working retail lately, which... I'm not too excited to go back to knowing everything that we know about this plague. I don't know. It's going to be a weird world, man. And I don't know about concerts. Are we going to have M3 in September? I hope so. I hope so. Enough's enough. And Faster Pussycat just announced their straight out of quarantine tour happening also in September. So we'll, we'll see. We'll see. It's a big unknown. It's a big unknown, guys. And everyone's like, it's going to be different when when we go back to going out again. Yeah, it will be, sure. But no one knows what it's going to be like. I'm just so sick of turning on the TV and hearing all these know-it-alls on freaking, you know, CNN and Fox News. And everyone seems to know exactly what the solution is and how things are going to play out. But but we no one knows. No one knows. Yeah. So, anyways, we'll give it a break from the talk about about that crap and you know the next coming uh episode we'll let emily maybe play some some stuff i know we had a request from a bobby blitz interview i gotta see if i can make that happen what else i'm looking here oh jerry from long island had a request uh i'll get to those later i think this episode's been long enough i'm gonna kill it right here guys to take us out right now a little judas priest all right yep Classic Judas Priest going back to 1997. Burning hell off Jugulator. KK Downing, Glenn Tipton, Tim Ripper Owen, Scott Travis, and Ian Hill here on Talking Metal with Burn in Hell. Speak to me. Of those days I won't forget your worst. Just return to pay you back I'm still laughing There's not much else I can do 
Coming back for you!